You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest... Hi, Annie here for Showreel. During Radio 3CR's summer season, Showreel specialises in looking at the Australian film industry and today we are going back to an interview with Melbourne local Gus Berger and his COVID project, The Lost City of Melbourne, a film that has captivated audiences and can be caught at Nova in Carlton. G'day Gus, Uh, people may know Gus as the uh, entrepreneur who who kick-started the uh, Thornbury Picture House up in Northcote, but he's also a filmmaker and a whole lot of other things as well. And during COVID... You weren't slothful. You actually made a film called The Lost City of Melbourne. Hmm. Tell us all about it. Um, thanks for having me, Annie. Um, yeah, so, yes, as you said, we, um, myself and my wife, Lou, run um, Thornbury Picture House up there in Thornbury, and we were one of the first businesses um, to close, um, which obviously was pretty devastating for, for everyone in that street, as it was for everyone um, affected by those lockdowns. Um, so... Um, once I sort of had kind of started to hibernate the business and reduce the costs and try to survive um, the all of the lockdowns, and I, I had a feeling at the time that it wasn't going to be over quickly, so uh, it was very important um, for me and Lou to make sure that we had a business at the end of it. Um, and then once we'd done all of that, um, you know, as a reasonably creative person, I sort of felt that I needed to channel um, those emotions and that time into something productive and creative and uh, I spent um, without really knowing what I was doing I certainly at that point um, didn't think that I'd be making a film that um, would get a release or anything like that it was more about just trawling through all of the archives at the start um, mainly the State Library of Victoria and um, I'm very interested in photography and um, have been for a long time and um, so I was intrigued at the the quality of some of those photos at the State Library, um, particularly from those early um, photography, photographic works of, um, you know, 1880 to 1910, 1915, those sorts of times, a dry plate photography era um, of just how incredibly detailed some of these photos were of like um, Burke Street on a... um, you know, Friday night or Collins Street on a Saturday morning and um, the cable trams and the people and the horse and carts. And how many and people? Shops. How many people were about? And um, that's what makes the some of those photos so um, interesting is that um, because they're dry plate photography, they're big negatives to start with. The State Library has done an amazing job in scanning those negatives, doing high-res um, TIFF files. So they're huge um, files that you can look at. And then you zoom in on people's faces and... Um, what they're wearing and um, 
you know, the, the shop signs and what's written on the walls and the windows and, you know, you get a real feel for, um, for life in Melbourne, you know, a hundred years ago. And, and you actually point out, uh, a very interesting fact that the, as uh, photography, uh, increased, uh, um, technic, uh, Technologically, they were able. The, those early shots of empty streets was because they couldn't have moving people or mm. vehicles in them because the uh, technology didn't have the capacity to uh, translate that movement. Yeah, that's that right. was really yeah, interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's funny actually because the film, the the link that I thought that was interesting at the start of this project was um, the development of Melbourne um, as a city um, uh, in conjunction with the development of photography because they were both happening um, at the really similar times um, you know the as the as you mentioned the um, the techniques of photography um, the initial I think it was um, um, the the um, colloidal process of the wet plate photography which is what you're talking about which is when you can't have any movement it takes there's long exposure of the film um, like camera obscura exactly hold yeah. still yeah exactly hold still don't anyone move um no and, smiling yeah. yeah but in in a way it was um yeah so that so they had to take those photos at the at right at, you know at dawn um on a sunday morning when there was no one around because as you said melbourne was um, such a busy um, city, the crowded streets and animals everywhere and all of that. Um, so, yeah, so then dry plate started to develop as Melbourne started growing and then, um, you know, had this incredible burst of colour with Kodachrome and in the in the 50s or the late 40s and early 50s So um, as Melbourne was changing again. So, yeah, it um, they, they do have a um, similar trajectory, photography in Melbourne. Uh, the, but um, there's uh, the fact that you decided to do a film that's called The Lost City of Melbourne, to me, uh, was uh, sort of very compelling because I've been thinking as I sit on the tram looking at all these coffin-shaped tall buildings uh, growing to t- change the shape of Melbourne, uh, at, you know, this developer's uh, wet dream, really. Mm. Uh, and you look at the pictures of other major cities, they all look the same because they're all doing the same, right? Mm. Uh, and that's part of that uh, exploration you uh, – and I thought this is a good time for people to actually uh, comment visually on these changes because of, look at the skylines. The skylines are so ch- are changeable. Mm. And in a way, that's one of the things you explore between the Victorian Melbourne, uh, which was an a international city, Mm. And uh, the change into the 50s where there was a holus bolus removal of the stain of Victoriana. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't that? Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, I mean, Melbourne, um, you know, post-gold rush, um, had a, you know, there's a lot of money around. And um, we oh, really were, famous people came and visited Famous here. people came and visited here, Um um, Mark Twain, Agatha Christie, I think General MacArthur had an um, apartment in the Menzies Hotel um, for many years. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were the the one of the most um, bustling cities in the world at that time. And um, 
a lot of hotels, a lot of theatres, um, a lot of people were coming here and um, we had the highest buildings in the world at some point. It's the highest the buildings in New York and Chicago at the time, like the APA building. Um, and I presume the infrastructure too, like uh, electric lights. I know that Launceston uh, talks about itself as being the first city to have electric lights in the city. Yeah. So yeah, Melbourne yeah. must have been uh, close behind. We would have been. Um, I think was the what, 1920s, I think. Um, the so it's infrastructure yeah, as well. Yeah, it's infrastructure. That's right. And we were early adopters of all of that. Um, speaking tubes, um, elevators, taking out, um, up um, buildings, lifts, um, cable trams, um, all of that. We were um, at the forefront of the world, really, in technology, which is... I found quite surprising considering, you know, we're so far away from everyone and we're at a time where, you know, there's no, you know, telephones and, you know, um, film or anything like that. Like how would people have known um, and how would people have got here? I mean, obviously you've, you're taking a long ship from Europe or the States. and um, I mean, there's stories about uh, people from the 1860s who came here. Uh, there's this book called The Welsh Swagman and he was a diarist and he came in the 1860s or something, it took a, a year before he received the letter that told him that his favourite daughter had died. Oh, no. How sad. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, my point, that's true. your point yeah. made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it is it is amazing. And, um, you know, I guess that people were, you know, fascinated with, the, you know, the world and exploring and going to new places and... Um, yeah, we were. Yeah, it was incredible. Some of these photos of like some of the theatres that just must have like, you know, four thousand people in them. I mean, they're enormous. You know, and um, you know, probably put those existing theatres like the Palais make them look small, really. Um, and people were yeah, going they had out that, all the, the time. Capacity of a thousand people. Yeah. Oh, some of them were were two thousand and two and a half thousand people. Um, but I guess um, I also love that the history of that those sort of early cinemas. And um, I live in Brunswick, and um, you know there was like an outdoor cinema on Sydney Road next to the retreat, which I just you know God, can you imagine? Can you, you imagine? go back in time to 1910 to see what that would have looked like? And yeah. Then, um, what about the cinema with the revolving? Uh, I know the Padua, the revolving stage. I've um, never heard of such a thing. I know, incredible. You arrive and you've got the the um, the trailers, if you like, playing on, and then it rotates to the orchestra, and then it rotates for another screen, and then you've, you're seeing your feature film. Um, remarkable, really. That's um, very entrepreneurial. Very entrepreneurial, very creative, um, and all the little bits inside that cinema, like the ticket box, were like you know from another planet. I mean, so Art Deco, and so um, handsome. Yeah, very handsome. Yeah, very handsome. Um, there's a, the thing about your film, which is um, fascinating to me, is the sources, the way you've put it together. So, of course, there's lots of stills, but there's also some fabulous uh, early footage uh, of the world that we don't see now. But it's you know it's uh, uh, Collins Street and um, uh, Burke Street and um, there's maps that show Exhibition Street as Stephen Street, which mm. is fascinating, and its relationship to the exhibition building. So it gives us an understanding of the mindscape of the people there. But also, um, you, as you move on to the whole whole destruction of you know the movement into modernity and William uh, Willer Willer 
Wheel in the Wrecker. Wheel in the Wrecker, yeah. Mm. Wheel in the Wrecker was here, which mm. is like Foo was here. But it's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you use great f- uh, pieces of uh, footage of uh, Barry Humphrey. Mm. And the sources you use are unusual. And the photographs of people who have fantastic photos by people who are master artists of photography who have come from Germany and seen the destruction in after the war and now they've come to Melbourne and they're taking these fantastic photos. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, yeah, like, as I, as I mentioned, like, um, with my interest in photography, I was aware of these um, photographers, two of which I think you're referring to, like Mark Strizik and Wolfgang Sievers, who... Yes, they did come from um, from Berlin. Um, they saw that destruction of Berlin, and they came here, and they were just like, "What? what why are we knocking down all of these buildings that um, you know were brought down so involuntarily in Berlin?" Um, um, whereas we're bringing them down as government-sanctioned um, wreckers, wreckage. Um, so, I think a lot of people were pretty powerless of what they felt that they could do in Melbourne at the time. Like, I'm sure that there were a lot of people that were um, aghast at what was going on, but there were definitely, at that stage of the 50s, it didn't seem like there was a very strong movement of people, collection of people that were standing up. So individuals like Mark Strzyk and Wolfgang Sievers were like, um, well, all we can do, what are, we're photographers, we're artists, we're just going to document what we see um, and they, you know, they had other interests and they were commercial photographers and they, you know, did other things. But um, they both of them had a strong interest in documenting um, some of these buildings that Melbourne had um, that were earmarked for demolition, like the Colonial Mutual building in uh, Collins Street um, and the fish market on Flinders Street and where they were just getting in there and photographing those places and then they were continuing to photograph them as the wreckers came in. So they've got some incredible sort of, you know, before, after and transitional photography of some of these incredible buildings. So, um, yeah, but um, Mark Strzyk also went on another level of, he was, I think, one of Melbourne's most accomplished documentary-style photographers. And he was, you know, getting capturing old people outside the State Library, reading the newspapers. The body movements. The body movements. And and the clothes. Yeah, yeah, really. It was a, it was yeah. a, a very much a just encapsulated old Melbourne, um, old people in the city as they saw their city disappearing before them. Like you know, he really did capture that um, feeling. Um, so yeah, so the, there were these tie-ins, I guess, um, that were you know, and I mean, it's great to be able to use some of these photographs because you know they're so beautiful. Um, you know, Mark Strzyk also documented the end of the verandas. You know, Melbourne oh, had verandas. a lot more verandas than we do now. Oh, it was now. too... too um, Victorian and colonial and... And uh, backward. Yeah. So they all went, yeah. all before the Queen came out. And uh, I don't know if you remember that that sort of um, sad irony of... Um, yeah, I you, do. Uh, yeah, they're the, wanting to... Get rid of them. So one we of didn't the brochures. Look. And then uh, one of the brochures celebrating Melbourne had the Ogs Chemist veranda that was being, that had already gone. So beautiful. Yeah. The detailing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that uh, there are some interesting things that I didn't really uh, 
discussion points. Uh, 1954, I think it was, when the Queen came out. Yeah. And also the um, Olympics. When was that? 56. 56. And that coincided with another major piece of technology, which was the TV. Yeah. And uh, the uh, big end of town just decided it was just too embarrassing to be looking. Mm. Uh, this is why we needed to be more modern and have square, ugly buildings everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it w- it really was a perfect storm, and um, and that ended up being the sort of the the theme, if you like, that that I felt was going to be the one that brought it together. And um, you know, I'd been working on the film for um, probably at least a year, I'd say, of just you know just working with all of this different archive and reading a lot of different books and working out, you know, well, not really intentionally trying to find that. The, the the strand or the theme that was going to bring it together, but it, you sort of stumble across it. And I think that the perfect storm that you're talking about is, was kind of, um, you know, the crux of the story, really. It's like the um, those pressures that are um, becoming greater and greater on Melbourne and those three pressures that you mentioned all coincided at a very similar time, 1955, 1956. And um, unfortunately, there wasn't much of a heritage movement in Melbourne at all at the time. But that's what, this is what happens, isn't it? Because uh, the balance of power or the belief that the decisions that are made about the environment that you live in, in an urban space, shifts, doesn't it, around this time? You yeah. Know, people start arcing up. Yeah, they do. And um, and was it um, Robin Anir that spoke in one of her books about um, people on the street that were... Um, mortified in the 50s um, about what was happening to some of these buildings in Melbourne and really didn't know what what they could do about it Um, because as I said there wasn't sort of that sort of galvanization of protest movement or anything like that um, which came later. Also there wasn't it was the establishing of the concept of culture because I remember when I was young there was this crazy idea that Australians didn't have any separate culture, which is just a, a ludicrous notion. Yeah. You know, a, a just not owning their own community. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, and I came across the, 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 the um, just around the corner from where we are, the um, which wasn't part of the film, but um, the demolition of the slums in Fitzroy and, um, you know, getting rid of all of these very strong communities and neighbourhoods for... Um, what we have now with public housing towers and, um, you know, talk about, you know, destruction of like not only buildings but entire communities at the same at the same time. Um, but, yeah, very strong cultures and communities all over Melbourne that were, um, yeah, severely impacted by what was going on at the time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.com.au.
3cr.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You are on Radio 3CR, your community radio station. We are chatting with filmmaker Gus Berger about his film, The Lost City of Melbourne. Yeah, uh, there's so many interesting things about it. The, the footage that you got from um, of uh, uh, Barry Humphreys having a hmm. yarn, hmm. Where young Barry Humphreys having a yarn with uh, one of the offspring of Will and the Wrecker hmm. was fascinating and very Perhaps humorous. So. Yeah. yeah, where Love did that. you find that? Um, that was there was that was an ABC archive search that came up with that. Um, yeah, it's 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 so funny. I just. As soon as I saw it, it was just like, oh my God, I have to use this. Um, but yes, um, Barry Humphreys goes down there in that sort of reporting style that he had of um, with the, holding the microphone and having a camera crew stumbling along behind him talking to Tony Whelan about um, the wrecking culture. And yeah, there's a, that, a very funny bit where, you know, he says, um, you know, how do you feel about pulling down all of Melbourne's great, great buildings and Tony Wheel and says, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. Brilliant. Um, yeah, that, w- that was great. Um, it, was, it was, yeah, it came across a lot of really incredible um, archive, which, I mean, if it wasn't for the lockdowns, you know, I would never have had the time to spend all of that time researching ABC, National Film and Sound Archive, State Library of Victoria, Acme have got a great collection of, um, of film, um, Herald and Weekly Times, Photographic Archive. Like there's, yeah, it's, you've got to enjoy it to do all of that and you've got to have time. And, mm. um, and luckily I had both of those. And I think that that's probably for me the only good thing to come out of all of those lockdowns was the time to kind of, you know, spend some time. Stillness with the family was really good. And the other part was to make this film. Um, what's it an exp- is it an expensive process to use all that archival material? Mm, yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, and I'm trying to sort of work out ways to kind of pay for all of that now ahead of a, um, a release in um, um, in August and September. Um, so yes, the there were some people that were it was um, kind, they very were- kind. Um, a lot of the the home footage, um, the found. Um, Super 8 footage of some theatres being demolished, which I searched for for a long time. Um, well, I, I knew that they existed, but it was just getting the permission from the families to use them. Um, so they were very generous with allowing me to use that footage. And um, ACME also were um, a state library. Um, I didn't have to pay too much for the rights. Well, all those photographs are out of copyright. So if I was able to source a, a version that was good enough for me to use, which I did, um, I didn't have to pay for that. But ABC and uh, National Film and Sound Archive were were expensive. Yeah, that's right. They've got to pay their bills. They are. are. (laughs) I mean, ABC getting rid of all of their archive researchers. I don't know. I know, I don't know. You know, it's like, well, who am I paying here? Yeah, exactly. That's it for Showreel this week. Next week, we highlight the documentary Ablaze that chronicles the life of the great First Nations activist Bill Onus. Until then, keep safe. So
To all. 